0: Sixty nine this evening, Psalm sixty nine, and we'll read through. psalm together. As you uh, look at this psalm and the contents of it, you see many references to the life, uh, the ministry of Christ, fulfilled prophecy in the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ. And uh, as you recognize, of course, this is David's psalm. David was both at times crying out concerning his own life. But David was also a prophet. He was a king and a prophet. Scripture calls him a prophet. And so there are times, of course, he's speaking of the Messiah. And there are times where it's somewhat difficult to tell uh, the difference between them, uh, as he is certainly David's son and had many uh, similar experiences. But let's read through this together. This is the title says, For the choir director, according to Shoshanim, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them where God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. This is God's word. We began this psalm some time ago, and as we have a little bit of a couple weeks here, uh, John is leading our VBS uh, this week and has other responsibilities, and I told him I needed to finish Psalm 69 also anyway. And so we wanted to come back to this and finish it up as, uh, as we have opportunity. And I just want to review a little bit. I know it's been some time. You may not have been here for the other uh, time or times that we have been in it. Uh, this is, as you can tell from the language, a prayer in distress. The distress is apparent even from the first few verses. As David is earnestly, desperately asking for God to act, the pictures that he gives in the first couple of verses have to do with deep waters that he is Sinking in or deep mire that he cannot find a foothold in. And he is crying out, but he's crying out so much that his throat is parched, his horse, and though he's looking for God, his eyes are failing, he's looked for so long. And that imagery is to point to the situation described in verse 4. If you look at verse 4. He's not literally talking about being in water or mud, but he is talking about a circumstance in which his enemies, who are powerful, are organized and arrayed against him, and they're mistreating him, and it is not for anything that he has done. I think as we looked at verse 5 in particular, when he says, O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you, uh, some take this psalm as applying to David and then spiritually applying to Christ. Uh, Some take it as completely applied to Christ, but this is the verse that gives them some trouble because, of course, Christ did not sin. He never sinned. And you could say what is said in verse 5 and be proclaiming your innocence seems like he's admitting wrong, but he's basically saying that God knows him. God knows what he has done. And as he continues on, he argues that the reason that he's going through what he's going through is not for something he did, but for God's sake. And so if you look at verse 7 in particular, he says, because for your sake I have borne reproach. And verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So he's not suffering for something that he did, he is suffering, it seems, for faithfulness to the Lord. And how is he being treated as he has this zeal for the Lord, zeal for the Lord's house, as he... Uh, represents the Lord and stands for the Lord. Well, as he fasts, verse 10, it becomes a reproach to him. As he puts on sackcloth, they're mocking him with a byword. And he even says, from the greatest in society, those who sit at the gate and judge, to the lowest, the drunkards, they are talking about him and singing about him and mocking him. And of course, you could look at this in terms of David, but it certainly applies to Christ. And there are certain texts that we see in the New Testament that are directly applied to Christ. Right, Verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus cleared the temple more than once. He was concerned that it had become a place where robbers had holed up and were robbing the people and he knew that it was to be a house of prayer and so he dumped over those money changers and he loosed the animals and he cleared it out. And so in verse 9 also says the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's quoted in Romans also applied to Christ. And so David, yes David was in circumstances like this but as the New Testament records Uh, This psalm has much reference to Christ. There are words that were fulfilled by Christ himself. And as David composes, as he prays, Save me, O God, and makes that prayer in the midst of distress, he continues with a confidence. Notice verse 13, and I would say also verse 16. He is confident in the loving kindness of God. Notice that in verse 13 it says, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. And then, after repeating some of the imagery in verses 14 and 15 from the early part of the psalm, he then says, verse 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And so... His confidence in prayer is based upon the nature of God. Why can we be confident that when we come to God, he will answer? Because God is a God of great compassion. Why can we, we, can, can we be confident? Because God is a God of loving kindness. He's a God of loving loyalty. And he is faithful to his own. The arguments that David makes here that are given include not only god 's compassion but verse seventeen he 's also the servant of the lord he says don 't hide your face from your servant. He argues that he 's in distress and such distress that he needs a quick answer he 's in need of redemption Verse eighteen Redemption is something that a near by relative could do for someone where they would come to the aid and to the rescue of someone who was related to them and David's appealing for that and in addition to that and I think we left off around here we kind of looked ahead a little bit as we looked at this part of the psalm but David says in addition to those things God knows his circumstances he knows his shame he knows his reproach he knows his dishonor he knows that it's not for him but it's because of his faithfulness to God and then the end of verse 19, all my adversaries are before you. God knew his enemies. And you think about David and the enemies that David had in his life, whether it was Saul or Doeg or any of the Philistines that opposed him at any time, of course, God knew and delivered David from his enemies. But when it came to Christ and the enemies that Christ faced, the enemy who was right among his own disciples, Judas, and then those who were outspoken and tried to trap him, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests, Caiaphas, Annas, all of these... Yes, David could say, all my adversaries are before you, you know them, but the Lord, of course, also in his circumstance had enemies and God knew them as well. So all of this difficulty and trouble, and don't forget the way that he is feeling, I'll just reference verse 14 and 15, how is he feeling, what is he expressing to the Lord? He feels like he's sinking in the mud, he feels like he's in deep waters, He feels like he's going to drown. And the words uh, at the end of verse 15 indicate the fear of death. Nor the pit shut its mouth on me. So this is great distress. A prayer in distress. A cry in distress to God. A cry to answer for the sake of his loving kindness and because of his great compassion. And he makes all these arguments with God. And then... He is completely alone. He's alone. His heart is broken. He has no one to help. I think you see that in verse 20. Reproach, that would be the insults, the shame that's being poured upon him. It says, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick, or I'm in Pain. And then he looked for some kind of sympathy around him from those made in God's image around him. The expectation was that he would find something of someone who would look at his circumstances and respond with some kind of pity. But is there any? No. He said, I looked for sympathy. I looked for someone who would look at my circumstances and care. But there wasn't any. I looked for comforters, verse 20, but found none. And that, of course, is, would have been the experience of David from time to time, but most certainly the experience of Christ as he faced sin, as he faced suffering completely alone. Remember when he went in the garden towards those who were coming to arrest him and all of his disciples forsook him and fled, abandoned him, and now he's alone. No one else with him, having to bear all of that pain and difficulty alone. And we certainly have a reference in verse 21 to the way that they treated our Lord, even a direct fulfillment in the scripture of what they gave to him to mock him in his suffering you remember when Jesus is on the cross and he cried out, "I thirst," and they offered to him vinegar in one gospel. I think it's Mark, it says that it was myrrh. and uh, as I took a little time to study uh, this verse and also the Gospels, why were they giving him vinegar, sort of and the New Testament also refers to it as sour wine well. If a king was thirsty, and he called upon his servants to give him something to drink, what would his servants bring? In the days of the New Testament, certainly the old as well, what was brought was sweet wine, something good to drink. Well, this was sweet wine, but it had aged for so long, and there it had turned sour, and this was actually given to Christ in mockery. It was offered to him in mockery, just like the crown of thorns, just like the reed that they gave him to resemble a scepter, just like the robe they put on him. This also was mockery. It was offered to him. So he's in a place where he's alone looking for sympathy and comfort, and all he has is mockery and mistreatment. And we could look at that. We could look at the gospel accounts and we could say, what wicked soldiers or what wickedness the Jews had in doing what they did to bring it to that place and for them to be looking on and sort of jeering and mocking that he was going through all of this. And yet, why was he there? Why was Christ headed to the cross? It wasn't merely those actors. It was us. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. One writer said, how often have our sins filled the gall cup for our Redeemer while we blame the Jews? Let us not excuse ourselves. And this is where we take responsibility for what is taking place at the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary, we too find ourselves among the crowd when we understand and know our sinful hearts and our wickedness. And in salvation, you come to Christ, you know his goodness and you know his mercy, and you may not have that heart now, but if you know your heart and you know that you're an enemy of God, you know that that is all of us. And so this loneliness in suffering is only added to by the mockery that continued to come his way, and he has no cause in himself that is calling for this. He is innocent. He's suffering for God's sake. And there's a turn in verse 22, and we're really coming to a place where there is a significant imprecation or a significant call for a curse upon the enemies of the Lord. For those who would, and I think the charge or the cause is given down there in verse 26 in this section. Look at verse 26. It says, For they have persecuted him whom you yourself, that's capital Y, God, has smitten. They tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. So, the call for the curse here is upon those who are persecuting the innocent. Someone whom God is acting upon, and of course, for, in the, sake, for the sake of Christ, it was not for anything that he did himself, it was for sinners. And so. The call for these curses come, and they are very strong. We read through the psalm, and there is a call for God's wrath in verse 24. There's a call for God to not grant them righteousness or salvation in verse 27. This is a call to harden them in their sin and then pour out judgment upon them for their sin and this is one of those places we could say in the psalms that is difficult because we are not used to praying this way we're not used to thinking this way but when the psalms have these imprecations when the psalmist prayed these curses upon their enemies remember that they are not themselves doing anything to their enemies they're calling for the justice of god they're calling for him to act and for him to deal with the enemies instead of taking it upon them themselves. And remember, this is not their vengeance, right? Because the psalmist here is talking about the mistreatment of this sufferer, but this is not vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so when a curse is called for, if it is properly uh, sin against the Lord that is is done by the enemy, then the Lord can choose to send these curses down and deal injustice for those who have mistreated his people. And he will. Right? He does. Now, there are times, and we've looked at imprecations in the past, we've looked at the curses that are called for, and sometimes, I love the statement where, sometimes the call for the curse God does not answer with a curse, and instead he shows mercy, and that's his prerogative. Because he says, I'll show mercy upon whom I'll show mercy, I will harden whom I will. And so for God to deal in mercy with one of his enemies is one of the glories of God. He does that on the basis of what Christ did, but praise the Lord for that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the epistles of Paul if God didn't show mercy to his enemies. But God does show mercy to his enemies. Now let's look at these curses. A curse is an imprecation, a call for God to to judge sin. This is not personal vengeance. There's a concern for God. There's a concern for his justice. There's a concern that God would be glorified, that there would be divine retribution for sins committed and there are sins being committed against the sufferer in the psalm especially because he's innocent and of course the dealing with the righteous means as he excuse me the dealing with the wicked means he's also dealing in a way with the righteous he's showing favor to his own people by bringing judgment upon those who would harm his people he's protecting his people and this is, a, again, a strong section where they're called for curses here that are awful. Look at verse 22. May, they, may their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. This is one of those verses on the surface that if you just read through, you could just keep on going. But if you stop and look at it, you have to say, what in the world does that mean? Well, a table is a place of fellowship for family and friends. It's a place of joy. In the case of a king, or in the case of someone who's in a position of responsibility, it may be a place where deals are done, a place where covenants are sealed. Those who ate at Saul's table included not only his own family, but some of his servants. Those who ate at David's table were not only people like Mephibosheth and some of his men, but also his counselors at times. When you think about David's counselors, you may think about Hithophel, who became for him in the rebellion of Absalom an enemy. And I believe that's the sense of what is taking what, it, what, it, what he's saying here in this verse. May their table before them become a snare and when they're in peace may it become a trap that very place they think is a place of safety fellowship peace now he's calling for a betrayal in the midst for the sake of their harm and of course this happened to Christ those who sat at table with him most of them all but one of them were his friends But there was someone at his table who was wanting to betray him so that he would be killed. And so may their table before them become a snare and when they're in peace may become a trap. This is a call for a secret betrayal that would bring about their downfall. And he's praying this for these enemies who are persecuting without a cause. Look at verse 23. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Make them unable to see and make them unable to stand. May their eyes grow dim, and you can certainly see that at times God did take away the eyesight of the enemies of his people, Elisha did, with the army that was knocking on the door of his city. Paul did in the book of Acts as a false prophet was coming and opposing the preaching of the gospel. God allowed this man to lose his sight for a period of time. Of course, Paul himself lost his sight as an enemy of the Lord, and it turned about to be his conversion. But here... May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. Disable them, incapacitate them so that they cannot do what they're trying to do. And when it says make their loins shake or tremble continually, the loins of a person, uh, uh, the, the, the hips, the thighs, what enables a person to stand and have a foundation, if that's shaking and trembling, there is no sure foundation. It's basically asking for their downfall. Unless we have any question about what the writer is saying here, it's very clear in verse 24 that he's asking that God's wrath be poured out upon them. He's asking that God would overwhelm them. That's the idea of pouring out. Just dump out your indignation, your righteous anger upon these, your enemies. And then he says, may your burning anger or your rage overtake them. Nahum six says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is, a, is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. As Jonathan Edwards preached that message from Deuteronomy, their foot will slide in due time. God will have his vengeance against his enemies. Those who oppose him, those who persecute his people, God will deal with them most assuredly. Spurgeon asked, what can be too severe a penalty for those who reject the incarnate God and refuse to obey the commands of His mercy? They deserve to be flooded with wrath, and they shall be. For upon all those who rebel against the Savior Christ the Lord, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, First Thessalonians 2. God's indignation is no trifle The anger of a holy, just, omnipotent, and infinite being is above all things to be dreaded. Even a drop of it consumes, but to have it poured out upon us is inconceivably dreadful. O God, he quotes Moses from Psalm 90, who knows the power of your anger. And you remember God's anger in the wilderness? God's anger in the wilderness was for a generation who did not believe him. They did not go into the land, and he said, your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness. Day after day after day after day for 40 years, people were dying because they had sinned against the Lord, because they'd rebelled against the Lord. Now, these are people who are persecuting his people people who are the apple of his eye do you think God is angry when someone persecutes his people well Christ came to Paul and said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting he stopped him in his tracks literally and called for his repentance of course he had mercy on Paul but it is a dangerous thing to set yourself against God, to set yourself against the gospel, and certainly to set yourself against Christ. So what a mercy it is, isn't it? When he would forgive those, those very ones, the, the book of Acts, as we continue to read, we'll see the generation, the same people who called for the death of Jesus Christ, who were set in opposition against him. What a mercy it was for God to forgive them. For God to offer them salvation, they had disowned and denied the Holy and Righteous One. They had murdered Him. And yet God offered in His mercy, but not here. And for the one who betrayed Him, look at verse 25, May their camp be desolate. May may none dwell in their tents. We actually read in Acts chapter 1 tonight that that verse is applied to Judas. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. Did you see that in Acts 1? Let's turn over there. How was that fulfilled in the life of Judas? It is something to read through this account And to think back to the Gospels and think, wait a second, I thought Judas threw the money at the feet of the chief priests and went out and hung himself. But this passage seems to suggest something else. Look at verse 15. Peter stands up says at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Right, Posing as one of the disciples of Jesus, and yet actually acting in betrayal towards Him. Peter said, He was counted among us, verse 17, and received His share in this ministry. They did not know. Some of the accounts, as you read through the Gospels, the disciples at the Last Supper are trying to figure out who it is. Jesus is going to tell them, but until he told them, they didn't know. He just appeared to be one among them who was with them. And then you have, parenthetically, an explanation of what happened to Judas. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Not a pretty picture. How could he have acquired a field with the price of his wickedness? Because he took that money and he threw it at the feet of the chief priest. Remember, he said, I've sinned and that I've betrayed innocent blood. Well, what did they do with that money? They went out and they purchased a field. Now, when they did that, it's not apparent but based on this passage it seems that they bought the place where he died that location then became a burial place for strangers and because of what happened there because of the awful gory death that Judas experienced probably hanging and then eventually because no one found him he fell and that what happened is described here what a mess place became known as the field of blood. So rather than contradicting the Gospels, this complements the Gospel account, and this field is actually owned by Judas. But it became a burial place, which nobody lives in. Nobody's going to live in a cemetery, unless they're like the man in the Gospels who was crying out, remember, possessed by demons. But nobody lives in a cemetery. And so because nobody lives in a cemetery, what happens to that land? Go back to the psalm, if you would. It's empty. There are graves there, but in the Jewish way of thinking, graves are unclean. You wouldn't want to associate with or touch uncleanness. And so now this curse that is uttered by David actually falls upon the one who betrays Christ. And that land, remember, God gave Israel a land to be inhabited, a land with houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, and he apportioned, he gave them by inheritance their property. But when it came to Judas, right here near Jerusalem, this piece of property, empty. No one to dwell there, no one to live there because of his sin against the innocent, because of his betrayal of the righteous one. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. Look at verse 26, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. Now we understand that God, in his plan of salvation, it pleased the Lord, Isaiah says, to crush him. It was God's plan. It was God's crushing of Christ it was Christ taking that penalty but God inflicting that strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered another reference to the action of God in terms of of the what happened to Christ but in terms of a human instrument or human instruments there's Judas there's Herod there's Pilate there's Caiaphas there's Annas there's the Roman soldiers, there's the Jewish priests, and so forth, and they are persecuting the Messiah. And they're talking about it. And the implication of, in the context, I, I believe, here is sort of a mockery, a rejoicing in the pain of the one who is wounded. So there's another curse that comes in verse 27, and another curse in verse 28. What's the curse in 27? The call, again, this is addressed to God, add iniquity to their iniquity. May they not come into your righteousness. Not only does he ask here that God would bring desolation to their land, that he would empty their land, but he also is asking God not to show them any mercy, to harden them in their sin and bring judgment upon them. I think that's the sense when he says add iniquity to their iniquity. God doesn't sin. He's not the author of sin. And God doesn't add iniquity in that he somehow does iniquity. But when he gives people over to their own desires, what happens? they, in the lusts of their own hearts, pursue that iniquity. They pursue that sin. You can see that process in Romans chapter 1. So when he says, add iniquity to their iniquity, the idea is harden them so that they'll continue in that course of sin and only be hardened in it to the point of judgment. And don't bring them any salvation. Don't show them mercy. Look at the end of verse 27. May they not come into your righteousness... Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 10 says, Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. Well, the writer here is really asking for God to deal in judgment for the one or the ones who have sinned against this innocent one. Look at verse 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. Remove them from the record of the righteous, or for being in company with those who are living. Some view this as a reference to the book of life, the eternal book of life. You can see in the New Testament that certain ones, Paul says, are in the book of life. I don't think that's necessary to connect that here. Though some have. One Writer suggested three possibilities. Either as a commanding officer would have a list of his soldiers and as he mustered them, he would name them or they would shout off their own names. But if a soldier died <coughs> or if a soldier deserted, his name was no longer called. So he's not among those who are serving him. Another idea is those cities that had a record of all those who lived in the city. And I think this is the other possibility, at least worth mentioning, that those who had died or those who were criminals would not any longer be included in the names of those who properly belonged rightfully in the city. So may they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. May they be excluded from those who are blessed with life. And this certainly is a foreshadowing, isn't it? For those who will not be in company with the righteous forever in heaven. They do not belong there. Their names will not be there. And so God might show his mercy to some, but in terms of these, the call, the request for those who've sinned in this way is for judgment to fall upon them and to fall in such a way so that it is final. When you think about Judas, what is Judas called? He's called the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the sobering thing that God would judge someone who betrayed his own son, and that that person would enter into eternity having betrayed the very Son of God. This psalm is a testimony to that betrayal. There's a reference here in verse 25 to Judas. So you you could look at this psalm and say, wow, what an imprecation, but don't forget this is a betraying of the very Son of God. To betray and to rebel against God is to rebel against the King of Heaven, the one who deserves all praise and honor and glory, and to think that someone would reject Him and rebel against Him and act to strike against Him and bring about, which He never can fully, but to seek to bring about His harm, to strike against the Creator, To fight against the one who made you? What foolishness. And so this imprecation is no common one. This isn't like something that we would set before ourselves and say, let's pray this for those who mistreat us. In fact, Jesus did set an example for us as he prayed for his enemies. But not all of those enemies would experience salvation. Some of them would experience judgment And that would bring glory to the righteousness, to the holiness, to the holy justice of God. We will continue the next time with the end of this psalm. But if I could just say, this psalmist whose heart initially seemed to be wrestling under all of this distress... And his voice was even hoarse. He's unable to cry out anymore. What is happening through this psalm? I think this is a, a wonderful point. I didn't make this point, but as I came, as I studied this psalm, I came across this point. How many verses does this psalm have? 36. So what, what is happening as he cries out in distress and he's calling out on the Lord, and his eyes are failing, and his voice is getting hoarse, is that as he is praying, he's actually gaining strength. Prayer takes strength. But in prayer, we gain strength as we fellowship with God. And the person speaking of the, uh, the writer here, said, and, the, and the one who's praying here, said he's, he's found his voice. He's continuing to pray. He's finding strength in prayer. And we can too as we call out upon the Lord. And may the Lord help us to call upon him and recognize even all of these uh, petitions that are made and the references to our Lord and all that he went through. Do you think he will be a sympathetic high priest? He has suffered innocently. And he knows what we go through. So he is a merciful, faithful, sympathetic high priest to whom we can call upon when we're in distress. And I would encourage you, keep on calling on the Lord. When you find yourself in a place of distress, trust that he will give you strength even as you pray. And even if we don't feel like we're being heard, God always hears And I think that's what you see at the end of the psalm is the rejoicing that God has heard and that he would hear. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow in thanksgiving for our Savior, for his suffering on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for giving us warning in your word, warning against Sin, warning against, rebelling against you. A reminder, Lord, that you deal out just retribution to those who sin against you, to those who would rebel ultimately against Christ. Even the one who betrayed the Lord, you dealt with. And so we pray that we might be faithful to you, that we'd be loyal to you, that we would never turn from you, but turn towards you. And even in a time of great distress, that we'd find grace and help and mercy in that time of need at your throne of grace. Help us, we pray. Lord, I pray if there's one who has not yet turned to you, who is still under your wrath, for you've said the one who does not yet believe the wrath of God remains on such a one. And we pray that they might flee from that wrath, that they might find refuge in Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.